This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault. Today's episode is another installment of Make Remake. It's where we take a movie and its remake and compare the two. Not to see which one is necessarily better or worse, but to see how two movies can tell the same story both similarly and differently. In the past, we've paired such films as The Invisible Man, Old Boy, Rebecca, and others. On today's show, we are considering the 1984 David Lynch-directed Dune and the 2021 version directed by Denis Villeneuve. Dune is based on a 1965 novel by Frank Herbert, which is considered the highest-selling science fiction novel of all time. Herbert wrote five additional entries into the Dune series, and there have been numerous more not written by him. Originally, a film adaptation was worked on by experimental Chilean filmmaker Alejandro Jodorowsky, but ended up being cancelled after the budget grew too big. Later on, producer Dino De Laurentiis acquired the rights to the film, and after seeing The Elephant Man, hired David Lynch to direct it. Despite author Frank Herbert being generally pleased with the movie, it bombed at the box office for being too confusing and weird. Since a lot of the novel takes place inside the main character's mind, it is often said to be an unfilmable book. In 2000, there was a miniseries adaptation of the novel, which allowed more room for the story to breathe, and it was a modest success. But in 2017, Canadian director Denis Villeneuve was brought on board to direct an adaptation of the book. He agreed to do it on the condition that the first novel be split up into two parts to make it work. Part 1 was originally scheduled to be released in November 2020, but due to COVID, it got pushed back to October 21st, 2021. After a strong opening weekend, Part 2 has been greenlit and is expected to come out in 2023. Joining me today to talk about the two versions of Dune is the show's resident geek expert, Sammy Felchenfeld, who was last heard on an episode, Better Know a Contributor, back in May. Sammy, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I can't believe it's been so long. I know, it's been quite a while. We, we <laughs> haven't found uh, the right subject matter for the two of us to come back together. Anyone who's listened to me on this has known that I've just been waiting to talk about Dune. <laughs> yes, that's very true, and it's something that I feel like we've been discussing for well over a year now. Very true. But yeah, so I figured you'd be a, a perfect person to bring on because one, like I said, you, 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 this is your area of expertise with the science fiction stuff. And I know you've read the original book and are a fan of it. And just the fact that you are so excited for this movie made you kind of the perfect person to bring on. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you today. My planet Arrakis is so beautiful when the sun is low. Rolling over the sands, you can see spice in the air. The outsiders ravage our lands in front of our eyes. Their cruelty to my people is all I've known. Well, like I said at the top, we're going to explore how things are done similarly and differently. And so let's start things off with how they're done differently between the two versions. While we won't be intentionally spoiling the movie, if you haven't seen at least one version of Dune, I suggest holding off until uh, you listen to this show. So let's, I guess, the big first thing that is done differently is the very nature that David Lynch's version covers the whole first book, so to speak, while Denis Villeneuve is splitting his up into two parts. So what we've been told is basically part one of Dune covers roughly the first half of the movie, the first half of the book story, and then part two is going to cover the second half of it. So that's a pretty big difference. And I wonder if the fact that the movie's been getting a positive reception has to do with the fact that, you know, it's such a big unwieldy source material. If by virtue of the fact of breaking it up into two versions, 
makes it a lot more palatable and easier to digest the information that's coming across as opposed to Lynch's who crammed everything into one. So I'm sort of interested to sort of see uh, how you feel about doing it that way and if it's working so far. Yeah, I, I think to illustrate that, I want to I want to share a couple of quotes. The first I'm going to share is uh, Frank Herbert's comment on the film. Like you said, he did view it favorably, but there, there's a, a famous wording he used. The movie begins as Dune begins. He doesn't say the movie is my book. He says it starts the same as my novel starts, which is true um, of, the, of the 1984 version. And then to also use another quote as Villeneuve saying in a few interviews that the first movie is setting up the world and the second movie is now he can play in the sandbox. He can. There's so much explanation done, although in some ways sparsely in the first movie, that he doesn't have to introduce a whole lot of stuff in the second book, in, in the second movie, pardon me, uh, that I think is is to the huge benefit of the way this is being done. And I think it's no surprise that the 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 year 2000 miniseries somehow made on a $20 million budget. It looked like it was, um, but it kept, it was very, very faithful. Not the best acting. There's a lot of problems with it, but it is a big story. It needs to be told in a big, big way. And Jodorowsky wanted to make a 10 to 14 hour movie which, you know, given the the book kind of makes a little bit of sense. So some credit to Villeneuve for making a two and a half hour movie for part one. I can't see part two being any longer than that. It doesn't really need to be because so much groundwork has been laid. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way to look at it because, yeah, we, we know all the main players for it. Uh, we're going to talk about later on some characters that appeared in the Lynch one that didn't appear in the Villeneuve one. And, and that's a, a bit of a difference. But other than introducing those people, we know basically all the main people. We know the Atreides family. We know the Harkonnen family. We know what's generally happening with the the the, the Fremens and stuff like that. So that, that's a great base level to really start at. And so it's just interesting how watching the Lynch version, which is just a, a hair over two hours. I think it's a two hour and 15 minute, or at least the version I watched is. I know there's been uh, re-releases where it's it's over three hours, but the version I watched was about two hours and 15 minutes, I think. And the first hour 30 is basically beat for beat what happens in part one of Dune. So in that last 45 minutes, they cram everything in that is going to be part two of Dune. So that's done very interestingly because I was watching, I'm like, what what did Lynch add to this that Villeneuve didn't get to? And then, of course, finally, I realized where the cutoff happened. And you're basically at the, the third act of, of the Lynch film. So that's that's something that I think that played out interesting. And in the in the book, you're not even you're you're roughly halfway, but you're not even quite a halfway. So the book is broken into three parts, um, or three books basically. Um, they were written originally book one, which is basically everything up until the the. This is a nearly sixty year old book, so I'm sorry if you really don't know this. But the siege of Arakeen, which is that city, which they actually never name in the movie, um, but the the city where the Atreides are. Um, the book one ends or part one ends there. And that's when uh, Herbert's first serial ends. And then he wrote two more serials that became parts two and three. And then he kind of expanded and really fleshed out to make the actual book. So parts two and three are flight into the desert. And then um, I won't go into much of book three, but Lynch's film kind of skips a bunch of important beats of um, like, it does say, okay, two years pass, which is in the book. I think it's three years, but it does talk about those pieces, but you're right. The first half of the, of the book is, is, pretty beat for beat for the for the first um for the first major chunk of the Lynch movie. And so what the problem is is that again, like I was saying with that Villeneuve was, was talking about, you know, the 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 playground has now been set up by doing all of these pieces. And I feel that Villeneuve didn't leave anything out. 
um, that's not vital to to what you need to know for the second half. Which again, we'll talk about those characters as well, which is an which was an interesting choice, but I think a smart choice. Um, I, I I was talking about this with my partner the, the other day. I still have a lot of love for the original movie, even though it's not great. It's it's wonky. There's a lot of really problematic uh, things that they do. There's some choices that are made, and it's not really a huge surprise that David Lynch basically didn't want his name attached to, to certain versions of the movie and for some time in the movie at all. So I think that there's, there's a, a, a straight, like, it's like you said, you know, people have called it unfilmable because it takes place in, in mostly in Paul's head. And I think that Villeneuve at least was able to, there's not a huge amount of dialogue in this movie, which I kind of noticed. There's a lot of sweeping vistas of sand. Um, and there's a lot of things that are sort of ser- kind of, you know, as me as a, as a lover of the book, I was smiling most of the time being like, that's a tiny thing that I'm going to notice. And a lot of other people won't, it doesn't take anything away, but it does add to someone watching this just for the, the experience. Whereas David Lynch got us fade um, slash sting in a, in a bikini. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I, th- I think a, a good thing to kind of talk about is maybe the use of narration, specifically inner monologues, that is very present in the Lynch version, where, you know, very often we'll have like a main character where maybe you can hear their thoughts or they'll be narrating it or things like this, where it seems like in, in Lynch's version, almost every single character you get to hear inside their, their head of what they're thinking, what their, their process is going on inside them, and that's completely not there at all in the uh Villeneuve one I I think that they don't even show like do they have Paul's inner monologue at all I can't I can't quite remember it's been a few weeks since I've seen it they don't include any of it and I think it that's really that's probably one of the key biggest differences from a narrative standpoint and and uh Blade Runner is a big example for this where in there's different versions of Blade Runner where there's lots of narration mostly from Deckard and there's versions where there's almost none or none at all and fans are kind of divided on what they prefer in the 1984 version, you know, Princess Irulan starts the movie with basically an explanation of it's sort of the uh, I think of it as the title scrawl from Star Wars, just giving a bit of of, <laughs> of a background, um, which, you know, the books actually has a lot of little bits from Princess Irulan throughout. And it actually happens in later books as well, too. Um, but in the new movie, we just get Chani with a, a little bit at the very beginning. We don't get any inner dialogue of Paul. I think that Timothy Chalamet does a good job of sort of acting this like what the heck have I gotten myself into? Or like, what is this? What is all this stuff happening around me that's impacting me? I think the closest we get is the tent scene. Um, So Jessica and Paul in the desert and um, they're inside a still tent and he has a a spice induced moment of prescience and and he keeps shouting these things. Uh, I I kind of won't get into it, but they're pretty word for word from the book. Um, And that's the closest we get to like him in the book too. He's thinking these things and saying these things and and his mother's trying to calm him down. Um, And this is a lot of table setting for the second half, which I think was interestingly done. But I will admit, um, I haven't talked to many people who haven't read the book or even seen the other movie. And they didn't feel that narration was needed. Like, you know, the, everyone I talked to has basically said, you know, I don't think you need the narration, but it, it is a, it is a workaround when you're adapting a book that's very cerebral. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it was something interesting where I, I don't think I missed it in the Villeneuve version, but in the Lynch one, it worked for me to an extent because it, it, it's always nice when you kind of get to see the motivations of different characters. We're normally like, this is the bad guy. They do bad guy things and that's about it. And and you don't really understand any more or less of, of what their rationale is. And I liked 
I like the concept of the inner monologue. The problem was, you know, it would be two or three lines. And the first line, it would be it would be nice. There would be a little bit of mystery to it. And then they would over-explain themselves. And it's like, okay, that's just now bad script writing that we're getting into. And it kind of almost got to the point where it was too much of a crutch of, you know what, instead of – showing things we're just going to tell you everything and and that's always a bit of a problem because in movies the the best movies are ones that show don't tell and this was a lot of tell 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 and i think that was a huge challenge with you know the amount of of stuff to cover the amount of characters the amount of characters that are integral to the story in a lot of ways too um even just uh like hey you know the the miniseries from 2000 it was three two hours you know with commercials so three 90 minute parts and even that left stuff out because that it was the only way to do it there's so much to do and i think that lynch was kind of stuck you know we like you said jodorowsky there were there were a ton of scripts before lynch's film happened and then there's been like three or four different versions of dune in 1984 since it's been made a tv version a, an unofficial director's cut that has nothing to do with the director all those types of things so i think <laughs> i think you're right i think that it, it's very much a it, it can be helpful and it worked within the context of the movie but I think Villeneuve. I mean, look at Villeneuve. He took uh, he took like a thirty page short story in in um, Story of Your Life, which became a rival, and like a full length movie that actually it's one of the few times when I've seen a movie and I was like, this was significantly better in my opinion than than the story, which I also loved too. Um, so I think it's just you know it's a challenge, and I think that there's a long story of uh, directors' names attached to a, a Dune project. For one time, there was Luke Besson who did fifth element and some other science fiction movies that aren't as well known. Ridley Scott was very briefly attached um, or nearly attached. And then he did Blade Runner instead. Um, There's been other names over the years. And I think that it's just a challenge. I think Villeneuve kind of is hitting his, like, you know, he's a highly sought after director and this was the best time. And this was always his dream anyway. It It all kind of came together in a great way. Lynch didn't, Lynch accepted the project without having ever read the book or even knowing the story. Hmm. That's, that's interesting, especially since <laughs> at the same time he was offered to do Return of the Jedi, which he turned it down. Yes. And like, I don't know, this kind of has a lot of the silly playfulness that Return of the Jedi has. <laughs> it's sort of interesting that he's like, oh, no, I'm not doing a Star Wars movie. I'm going to do my own sci-fi thing that basically is very similar to what Return of the Jedi is. And he regrets it. And that's where we are now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think it's interesting. I, I I want to talk very briefly, sort of you hitting on the way De, uh, Denis Villeneuve uses his scripts and things like that. I'm I'm quickly pulled it up because I was curious. I'm like, he isn't really known for writing his movies, and like it looks like he wrote all of his French Canadian films, and then he hasn't written anything since Ensemble until Dune, where he is a co-writer. So that's sort of interesting how, you know, especially Arrival, which took a short story and was managed to be expanded, and Blade Runner 2049, which was building on the world of the original Ridley Scott one, and stuff like that. And now he's finally, he he didn't have anything to do with the writing of that, and now he's back kind of writing. I don't know how much maybe pen to paper he was actually doing, or, or fingers to keyboard. Maybe he was just there helping to shape the story more than anything. But is that, do you have any insight onto that? I think that there was, I don't know a ton about it. Um, I know, I think that he, it was one of those things where Spates and Roth already had a script and he was hired as director and he said, I have to, I have to be part of the writing process. And I think that's because, you know, he was very young when he first read Dune and he's seen all like the other adaptations. And there's a, there's a quite famous early nineties audio book. It's like 40 hours, but it's, 
mostly acted. So it, there's a narrator, but almost all the dialogue, not all of the films, all the dialogue is done by actors. It's very, very, very good. It's just a book, but it's done, it's acted quite well. So, I mean, I'm sure he's listened to that many times, maybe like I have. Um, so I think that it was one of those things where he took this, he, he has this project. He said more than once that he'd like to do three films and then go back to smaller movies, possibly forever. Um, I think it's just, this is his passion project. It would be mine if I was a director for sure. So I think that he just needed to be a part of the, the writing. And I wouldn't be surprised if part of his writing or part of his input was, okay, this, we need less here, more here. And that was kind of the approach he took. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. I know we've we've danced around a little bit, and and maybe we should we should start talking a bit more. But uh, some of the characters are in it are very are, are done very differently. I think the first one, a character who's in both, is Baron Harkonnen, who in the two thousand one uh, version is portrayed by um, Stellan Skarsgård, and then in the nineteen eighty four version we have Kenneth McMillan, and. These two characters' portrayals could not be more differently. It's sort of interesting, like especially just aesthetically, where in the 84 version, he's basically got this flying suit, but he also has like this pus and acne all over his face. We understand that in the new one, he is sick with something and he keeps having to take these, you know, black milky bats that are very disgusting. But then he also has this ability to get super tall, which... I, is not really discussed in the movie, but I was talking about with my dad, who's a big fan of the book as well. Uh, it has to do with something about like gravity suspenders or something like that. So it's just interesting how differently these two characters are played on, on aesthetic level, but also on a performance level, it's, it's this over the top comical villain in the 84 version. Whereas in the 2021 version, he was pretty terrifying. Skarsgård is, is a very intimidating actor. And, and I was very impressed with what he chose of, of how he chose to portray it. I think you, you kind of hit it right on the head in, in the 2000 miniseries as well. Harkonnen, Baron Harkonnen is also, it's a, he's still very like evil, blah, 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 but you know, archetypal evil to the point of almost comedic. Um, this movie, I think Phil Novi went, went on, on record saying he like in the book, Harkonnen is, he, he's, he bad. Uh, he, and, and like he, he's, and I think that the 84 movie kind of misunderstood some of the book basically like that this version is what I visioned him just like a huge guy. He has these, the gravity suspenders are built into him. So if you notice some shots from behind, um, you'll see these like metallic parts along his spine. That's what it is, um, that makes him hover. And that's allows him to, there's a point where he's like hovering up at the ceiling. Um, yeah, but it's, it's a menacing villain. And it, it, it the point is to like, you want to feel, this is one of the things in Jodorowsky's version, um, cause there's a documentary made about Jodorowsky's attempt, um, where he, he also saw Harkonnen as extremely menacing, extremely vile, evil, but one key thing, and this was a huge part of the criticism of the 84 book, and it's a, or the 84 movie, and it's a problem in the book, is that Harkonnen is meant to be read as gay. Um, very, much more menacingly so in the 84 movie, um, but it is a part of the book as well. And that's just stripped out of this one. There, there's, there's an element of it there of him sort of just being a deviant, like whatever that could mean. Um, but that was, it's, it's something looking, you know, watching the 84 movie again, I was like, roll my eyes. I was like, yes, of course, the one gay character, this entire universe is like ugly as sin and has all these pus <laughs> and all this stuff. And there's also some things that happen like that the character does. And it, I don't, I can't speak to what Herbert was thinking. Like, I'd like to hope that wasn't a re- reflection on his views on homosexuality. I mean, there are pretty much no gay characters across the entire book series, but 
this it, sci-fi writing pretty much didn't have queer characters until people came along and started putting them in it, putting putting those in in those stories. So, um, not to forgive that, but I think at least this is a this is the properly menacing um, version of Harkonnen that we're just going to see get more menacing in part two. Yeah, I I, I notice the what seemed like as close to explicit queerness as you can get in the 84 version when uh, we're going to talk about him in a little bit, but when Fade, the Sting character, uh, steps out of, I don't know what it was he was stepping out of, and he's basically licking his lips, lusting over him, whereas in in the Villeneuve version, that subtext is completely removed. And I wonder if Villeneuve just sort of viewed it as an unnecessary distraction to the story and you know, this idea of, yeah, we don't need to make the only queer character in this film the bad guy sort of thing. So it's not really adding anything that doesn't need to be there. So let's just sort of scrap that element completely. Because truth be told, what we know about Harkonnen, that doesn't really matter. It's, you know, his con- he seems to just be this megalomaniac, power-hungry person who just wants to control the flow of spice. And that's really what we need to know about his character motivation. Everything else sort of is a bit superfluous. Right. But yeah, and then the other thing is obviously characters who appear in the Lynch one that do not appear at all in the uh, Villeneuve one. You know, the big one is Fade, who's played by Sting in his infamous uh, metal bikini uh, bottoms that he wears. Uh, Princess Arulan, the Emperor himself, uh, the Guild Navigator, all these characters appear in Lynch's Dune, but do not appear at all in Villeneuve's. Now, is this because... uh, much like sort of like um, Peter Jackson removing Tom Bombadil from the Lord of the Rings movies. Is this Denis Villeneuve removing them completely from the story or should we expect to see them in part two of Dune? Because interestingly enough, they, all these characters appear at the very beginning and throughout the film of Lynch's Dune. Yes. And that was a choice made again as well in the miniseries, but it's not a case in the book. The Guild Navigator pretty much don't see, I think more than once, um, Princess Irulan is just sort of almost like book voiceover, like I said, those little callouts, and Fade, you know, pops up here and there. Um, Villeneuve's already said Fade will be in the second movie. I think that's like the the big casting news um, that uh, that people are waiting for for the second movie, and took some elements of Fade to expand um, the Beast or Bonds character in this movie. I think just to like. I think Villeneuve at one point said there's already too many people in it. It's it's one thing already that Chani is an incredibly important character and she's barely in this movie, but Zendaya is a key part of the marketing and she's a key part of the of, of the story, especially going forward. So we're going to see Irulan, I'm almost certain. We're definitely going to see Fade. I'm not so sure about the Emperor because um, the Emperor's, yeah, the Emperor is part of the story, especially in part two, but there's not really like... It can be done without him. I think it's, I find it really hilarious that uh, I think it was Jodorowsky that wanted Salvador Dali for the emperor because yeah, the emperor, <laughs> the emperor is peace is so minimal. Um, but there were elements of it done well in the miniseries. I will, I will admit that sort of kind of set up some of this, you know, inter-house political uh, intrigue in the movie, in the new movie, they talk about the lands are at a lot, but they never actually explain it. It's essentially all the houses. So Atreides, Harkonnen, Carino, which is the emperor's house, they're all part of this like noble noble houses, like a house of lords in a way. And there's a hierarchy of them, which is why Atreides gets getting the fiefdom of Dune is such a significant of Iraq is such a significant deal. We don't really need all that detail because what we're gonna get in part two, again, not going into a ton of detail, and it's some pieces that the Lynch movie sort of glossed over really quickly, um, is the business side of things that is a little bit more focused on. 
um, we hear a lot about, you know, we need to make money. Both Atreides, like Leto saying that, but also Harkonnen saying, you know, we're going to get back Arrakis so we can make money. And that's actually a lot more key than knowing the Imperium's politics in a way. Hmm, interesting. Okay. Now, do we expect to uh, see the return of the metal bikini in Dune 2 from Fade? Interestingly enough, uh, Fade is described shirtless in the book, which is why uh, par- partially, like, he-, he is meant to be very attractive. And I think that's the point is, you know, that um, the the Baron is lusting over his own uh, nephew, which is terrifying. Um, there's some familial stuff that I don't think the, uh, the the movie will dive into too much of why it's important that fate is good looking. There's some weird stuff that sort of explains this, but the short version is um, the Bene Gesserit breeding program that resulted in Paul um, also resulted in fade. That's not really a spoiler. Um, It's just part of the story that doesn't really impact much of what happens. Um, But needless to say, the idea is that over hundreds and thousands of years, the Bene Gesserit are trying to perfect people. So I don't know if that means it's a metal bikini. I highly doubt we're going to see something like that. We might see, um, we're supposed to know that Fade is a good fighter. So however they choose to, to show that is however Villeneuve chooses to show that, it's completely on him. I've seen a ton of names already p- tossed around for who could be playing Fade. So who knows? Who knows? Do you have any preferences of who you who you think would make a good Fade? I don't care. I think every single person that Villeneuve cast in this movie is a good actor. And that's the most important thing to me. <laughs> that was not shade. That was not shade on Sting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he he almost he has almost no dialogue in that movie he basically exists solely to be a good fighter and to look good while doing it and he accomplishes that i guess <laughs> yeah i mean the actor they chose for fade in in the miniseries was better at least in that regard is that someone who could act or at least who could mm. try to act because acting wasn't a strong suit of that of that version. Either way, we're going to see this character. And I think Villeneuve just was like, you know, we're only telling half the story. It's like you said, there, there, there's a lot of pieces in the book that might be like little tiny bits in the early parts of the book that sort of then characters introduced later. But this is a key thing about literature that I try to remind myself by being a writer and watching movies too. You don't have to introduce all your characters. You can introduce a character in the last third of the book and they can still be important. I find that weird because in a play, you would never do that, which is something that still happens. But in writing, you know, it like that character is important when they're important because that's what life is like too. So it'll be interesting to see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you have any last things you want to discuss of, of some differences between these before we move over to similarities? Yeah. I, one of the key differences I do want to bring up is um, in kind of, I'll say mostly ship design, but it, it impacts in the design of the world, which I think we'll talk about in some similarities as, as well for me too. But the key thing I want to talk about is how very, um, Geiger-ish some of the ships were, like giant spheres with weird shapes, like not not quite alien, but um, one key one for me. So in, in I think in the 84 version, the Highliners, which are the Guild Navigator ships, were big black sticks, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm. And then in this movie, they don't actually call them what they are, but you see it a few times. It's a, it's a very, very significantly large um, gray sphere. And then on the inside, you can almost see like a reflection of the planet or something. Um, that is a little closer to description of in the book, but it also just like blew my mind. Cause you, I just know that, that, you know, the art direction team sat on that for a while. Like, how do we, how do we show the scale of these highliners? Cause they are supposed to be gigantic. It's very, very difficult to fold space and actually navigate, which is why spice is so important. Um, and so of course they'd have these gigantic ships that are, that can fit, you know, 
you you see these little specks of the sh- of a ship coming out, and then it hits the ground as huge and and has like a thousand people on it. Um, so it's just something in terms of a key difference that I think that there was a better sense of scale throughout this movie in in all sorts of designs that just made sense to me um, a lot more than I think the eighty four movie did. Like there there was attention paid to how ornithopters fly and how they're how they're made and all this stuff, um, which you can do now when you have a two hundred million dollar budget and it's very different from a forty million dollar eighties movie. <laughs> yeah. That's that's good to know. A beginning is a very delicate time. Know then that it is the year 10,191. In this time, the most precious substance in the universe is the spice melange. The spice extends life. The spice exists on only one planet in the entire universe. The planet is Arrakis, also known as Dune. All right, uh, let's move over to some similarities between these two movies. And I think for me, one thing that was interesting is, you know, despite the budget differences and despite the, let's call it quality differences, a lot of the designs I found were were quite similar, especially the sandworm. Obviously, the new sandworm is all CGI and the original 84 one looked like it was mostly practical effect with maybe some CGI added onto it, but they look pretty similar that the way they have it set up with all these like rows of teeth circling the inside of the mouth of the sandworm, basically creating kind of like a, a black hole, which actually reminded me a lot of it of like a, a Sarlacc pit in star Wars, interestingly enough, which is ties into the return of the Jedi thing yet once again. Um, but yeah, is this just both filmmakers really taking the description that Herbert laid out and, and doing it faithfully? I think there's an element of that. And it should also be noted that Herbert did write a version of the, of the script that became the 84 movie. Like his version is nowhere to be seen because he's not a script writer, but I think there's some pieces in there that he may have been, he Lynch tried to keep him away and Herbert was respectful in that, but I, there may have been pieces of, you know, this was the vision I had. And it's also, there's a, there's a key thing, you know, the Chris knife, which is the knife that they keep showing in visions and stuff in the new movie. It has a certain shape because it's, it's made out of the tooth of a, of a worm. So I think that there was a desire to kind of keep that similar. And I'm pretty sure the Sarlacc pit, pit was inspired by the sandworm sandworm considering, you know, that movie came out almost 20 years after Dune did. Yeah, I just it was just something that I really noticed. Obviously, the the Dune one kind of has like flaps that open the mouth. That actually sort of remind me a little bit of uh, the alien pods and Alien too. The way mm-hmm. that the, those eggs sort of open up, uh, very similar. Which doesn't surprise me since this is the same uh, era of Ridley Scott's Alien a, a few years after. Obviously, uh, but yeah, the, that kind of seemed a bit similar similar nature to that. But uh, yeah, they were very similar worm styles and and i know you know talking about this before we start recording this is going to be a a bit of a contentious subject for you but i thought the still suits also looked pretty similar yeah so the still suits did look similar because it is a it's a like a dark gray suit uh, or like an almost black suit with tubes. That's what it is. Um but the book there, there's quite a lengthy description uh, especially when Kynes says to Paul early in the movie, you know, uh, have you ever worn a still suit before? And Paul's like, nope, it's my first time. And that's when some of the description comes out to sort of explain why it's difficult to put one on properly, why it's important to close the seals, all these things. In my mind, um, the 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 Lynch version is just, you know, it's sort of a dark suit and there's a bunch of straws on it. Like it, it just seems, I think the problem for me is it didn't seem as believable. Whereas, you know, I need to believe that someone's going to be in a dark suit in the desert. Um, I think that Villeneuve 
is a little, it's just a little bit more spot on to me, but you're right. A still suit is a still suit. If you were to look at the still suits in the 2000 and 2003 miniseries, which also covers the sequels, um, they also look similar because they're going to, I just think at least there's a, there's a, a higher level of realism as real as can be with filming a movie in the desert um, with the still suits in the new one. But I agree that there is similarities. Okay, <laughs> good. Cause I, I mentioned earlier to you, I did. If, I thought you were going to be very mad at me for bringing it up again. Uh, but yeah, they, they, they both kind of with the tubing and the things like that, it just looked very similar to that. Obviously the, uh, the nostril nose piece for you to breathe out of. So uh, you're not breathing in spice directly, I guess is a, is just something that's lifted directly from Herbert's text. Uh, so you can only do sort of so much with that idea. Yeah, exactly. And then it's, you know, I, I think there's also the, um, it's kind of like thinking about how a lot of shows have tried to deal with doing COVID and having a mask on an actor's face. There's a lot of, you know, ripping the face part off so you can see the actor act, even in the, even in, 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 in this movie too. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that too. Yeah. They have like these, what basically really look like, face mask that we're wearing for covid uh in this new movie and uh i guess kind of like a, a scuba mask almost sort of thing and and that isn't present at all in the 84 version i don't believe it just because it's way easier to mic someone i'm sure without them their mouth being covered <laughs> probably probably because <laughs> then you end up in the in this sort of tom hardy realm of let's cover his face up and listen to him not yep be able to be understood yep uh, now, speaking of saying things, I also found a, a lot of the dialogue seemed very familiar. Obviously, you know, stuff like the spice must flow is probably the tagline for the original book. And so you have to include that. But there's, you know, I, I watched the, the 84 version just yesterday and there's quite a few moments where I'm like, hey, this is basically, you know, beat for beat the exact same dialogue as the new version as well. Uh, so I'm sort of curious about how you found the dialogue in the new version. Is it just all like basically lifted directly from the book? A lot of it is. And it's a lot of, you know, summarizing in, in a way that fits the characters. Um, the, the, like the conversation between Jessica and Paul after the Reverend Mother leaves, that's sort of like a, it's like a shorter version of a longer conversation in the book. But then certain things like Jessica's litany against fear. Um, I must not fear fear is a mind killer, uh, kind seeing the worm and saying, um, bless the maker and his water. Uh, even, even, uh, Harkin and saying like my Arrakis, my dune, like there's a lot of things that are exactly like the book. And that's, it's funny because, um, and that's another thing Herbert said around the original movie was, um, you know, I, these are my words, I'm hearing my words in this movie. And I think that there's, there's, it's a testament to how he sort of built the world and how, um, religion is a really key part of the Dune universe. It's not dive, dive into too much in, in this movie, and it won't be as much in the second half, other than sort of the direction of, of Paul's life. Um, but I think there's this component of a religiosity of, of, you know, the Bene Gesserit has been around for thousands of years. So there's these sayings, and there's sayings for the Fremen, because they've been there a long time and everything too. So um, I think that you, you can't change a lot of those. But then, of course, you have like Duncan Idaho with that joke that was in the trailer about like Paul putting on some muscle. It's like one of three jokes in the whole movie because this is not a humorous yeah. movie, not that it's the most dry or serious movie either. Um, that's obviously not in the book. I think that it's just, you know, there's certain things that don't need to change. Um, but the good thing is there's also not, um, I found at least in the 84 one is that there's a lot of, like you said earlier, you know, explain, just trying to explain something in a single sentence or just, you know, kind of covering a whole, a whole gap with a, with a very brief 
phrase. Um, but uh, yeah, there's definitely going to be a lot of similar similar language. You'll see a bigger difference for part two. Like you said, they, it, Lynch tried to fit, fit half the book in 45 minutes. Villeneuve's going to take a very different approach. Mm. And so I guess maybe to sort of uh, tie everything together, what should we be looking forward to in part two that maybe is not there in Lynch's version? Yeah, we're going to see a lot more Fremen life. Um, we're especially going to see, it's very important to see Paul and Chani's relationship develop. Um, you know, there's a couple pieces that Lynch still does um, in terms of, we know that Jessica's pregnant, so we're going to meet the, the the child. And there's some important things and very challenging things to do about how the child is acted, um, which is another casting thing, but it's like a super young child. So it's not as big of a, a big of a piece yet. Um, I think that we're going to see a lot more um, of kind of Paul's visions and how those manifest and where kind of things are going at the end of the book. Um, at the, there, there's a, a, a this is a, a also like at the a four, almost 40 year old movie, the, in the, at the end of the 84 Dune, it rains, which pissed me off to no end. <laughs> it, it fits the way the, the, the movie was made, but that's not, the point is not that Paul is able to make it rain. The point is that Paul is, 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 this the the product of all these things happening so he has a role to play um and that that role doesn't give him godlike powers he's he's playing kind of herbert said it as it's a man playing at god not a man who has become god um which is then you know expanded on in later books that i won't get into because it gets a mess after the third book but um i think what we what we can see is we better understand who paul is how he grows his relationship with his mother and especially the relationship with chani all of those are important in sort of setting the stage for the actions and the choices he makes, um, you know, the years later that the second movie will, I think the second movie will start with the, like kind of, it, I think it'll start immediately after the end of the first one. And then there will be a time skip instead of, there's a couple of things that they need to explain um, or be a good idea to, to kind of touch on before they do the time skip. Interesting. Yeah. It's funny. I'm watching the Lynch version. I watch, it, I was like, Oh, this movie's just the Matrix. Because <laughs> there's a lot of similarities between Paul Atreides and Neo, I find, as far as the the one, which is, you know, a, a very, you know, uh, oft-used hero complex, savior complex sort of thing where yeah. it's just an easy character archetype to follow. By watching, I'm like, oh, I, I, I completely understand. It's the Messiah figure. <laughs> it is, and there's a lot of problems with it, too, because <clears throat> even the original book was criticized. It's it's very much a white savior thing. Um, but a lot of Paul's internal monologue, and we see it, glimpses of it in the first movie, I think we'll see more of it in the second, is that he, this is not what he wanted. Like, he shouts at his mother, like, you did this to me, basically meaning, like, you you like I know that you that it's because of you and because of this breeding program and stuff. He's not explicitly blaming her, um, but he's now stuck in this role and he can't do a thing about it. He he shouts about you know a holy war in my name across the galaxy. He doesn't want that to happen. But what's really interesting about the and I don't remember how much the eighty four movie dives into this, but at the end of the book, he uh, I don't, I don't want to give too much away, but he's doing everything he can to fill the role without making it you know what everyone else wants him to be. And then Herbert's, Herbert's kind of like, there can be a Messiah, but it has to be the Messiah on their own terms, not so much on on what religion or what people expect or want of them. And that's sort of where he turned that sort of chosen one on its head. He did. I'm going to admit, he didn't do the best job, especially with how the, the later books pan out. And I really do hope Villeneuve gets to make his third movie, because Dune Messiah, which is the second book in the series, is sort of like a coda to the first book. Um, and, and Villeneuve said he'd only adapt that one, because after that, there's a lot of time skipping of the later books. So... 
it sort of closes out Paul's story in, a, in you know, a, a way that sort of reflects on this white savior piece, not the white part, but the savior piece um, mm-hmm. that I think is is better than the, like you said, kind of the matrix chosen one, you know, you're the one who will solve all our problems type of thing. Yeah. Well, I think it's something that's definitely going to come into play, especially when you look at the Fremen people who they cast for that. It's basically all people of color. You know, it's basically led by Javier Bardem and Zendaya. So you've got a lot of people who are either black or uh, Hispanic. Uh, so I think that's definitely going to uh, Latino. I think that's that's going to be something that really comes into play. And I, I wonder if they're going to grapple with that. And and it has to, because in the books, the, the Fremen are descended from the Zen Sunni wanderers, which are all perceived to be people of color. So and, you know, these people live in the desert. So I think that there's just uh, there's there's things that can't be avoided that the other adaptations have tried to. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah, I I, I don't doubt for a second that it's going to be something that will probably be addressed uh, because I don't think you can make a movie this day and age where you have those types of characters and it's not at least acknowledged. Yeah, definitely. All right. Uh, do you have any other similarities you want to talk about? Um, yeah. I mean, the, there's a, uh, there's a lot of like, so the 1984 film is more colorful is probably something you've, you've noticed. Um, the, the new movie is more realistic. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a sand planet. There really isn't a blue sky cause there's no pools of water above ground. So, you know, the, the, the 84 one doesn't have a ton of blue sky, but there's, you know, there's color, there's, there's specific color grading. Caladan is like dark blue gray. Um, whereas in the new one, Caladan just looks like a, a water, like it, lo- it looks like Ireland or England, which is likely where it was filmed. Um, they try to make things a little bit more realistic, but I think there's a similarity at least in the, you know, Dune is this color. When you see the Fremen, these are sort of the general, other than the blues of their eyes, you're seeing sort of this like in the shadows type of thing. You're seeing fog when you're seeing the Bene Gesserit. You're seeing, like, I think that there's some similarities where uh, David Lynch went a little bit more, you know, strong color grading. All of the scenes in Harkonnen, like at Getty Prime, is like orangey, reddish, you know, quote unquote, like hot, evil colors. And then we're seeing Caladan that's more of the cool colors and things like that. Um, and that was that was made even more so obvious in the 2000 version. But I think at least that that, that is a similarity that I like is that it's, I'm saying it's a difference and a similarity that the, that the, the way that each director has, has played with color has been, I think, good in a, in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the, the other thing is that um, both films lent a lot to Jessica. Jessica is an important character. As you probably noticed by looking at the cast list and watching the movie, there are very few women. Uh, Kynes is written as a man in the book, but I think actually worked extremely well um, as a, as a woman and, and uh, specifically as a woman of color who, who identifies as a Fremen, even though she may not have been born that born as a Fremen um, is more, is, it works well in the movie, but J- Jessica is an extremely important character and I think is done very well in both movies. She's not given as much in the 84 film, but you can still see like, she is a commanding presence. She, she is, to me, she's more of the star of the movie than even Kyle McLaughlin is because he was just a baby at this point. So um, <laughs> still a very new, a fairly new actor. He had, he had done some stuff at that point. So I, I do like that as a similarity of, you know, giving Jessica, she's better acted in the in the new one. I love Rebecca Ferguson. I think that there's a lot more nuance to her. There's a lot of fear in her, which is not explained a lot, which I kind of like. Um, but I do think at least in both that they were they were done very well. Mm-hmm. I thought, yeah, I thought the, the Jessica character was a very interesting one because she seems like such a complicated person because on one hand, you know, she basically is a witch and has these powers and is a part of a secret society that is, uh, basically doing selective breeding of, uh, of how to, uh, create a savior down the line. 
but then she also at times seems a little weak and powerless. So it's it's just such a it's such an interesting dichotomy of of what this character is and when she chooses to use her powers and when she chooses to be I guess quote unquote more subservient is a very interesting one and I think Rebecca Ferguson really does a great job of sort of balancing those two characteristics of her. Yeah, because there's a lot of problems with the character, you know, it, it just from a concept, you know, she she's a concubine. She's not the Duke's wife. But she fell in love with him and they love each other. And that's, it's not really explicitly said, which is fine. It's, it's more that he says, you know, you bore me a son, even though you weren't supposed to, because the whole point is he was, she was supposed to have a daughter. And what was, without going into is is their daughter and someone else's son, also selectively chosen, that their son was going to be the, 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 this ultimate savior. So like she screwed things up, but she did it because she loves her husband or sorry. See, I even said she loves the Duke. Um, and I think to try to do that in a meaningful way, like as it's explained in the book is that she basically grew up in the Bene Gesserit and then was just given, she was just given to the Duke and that's it. Like this is, this is who you live with now. You are the concubine. You will bear a daughter. Go. Um, so I think giving her some agency, but I think this movie also was like, you know, she's super conflicted about who she is, what she's done, how and when she uses her, her powers. And I think, you know, we don't see a lot of the Bene Gesserit, but what we do see like you just know there's some of them that are just using their powers left, right, and center. And that is true because that's what they've been doing sort of in the shadows for thousands of years. Yeah. I almost feel like I want to comment on a bit more. I feel like in the Villeneuve version, if I'm remembering correctly, I don't think they make it explicitly as clear that she's just the Duke's concubine. Whereas in Lynch's version, it is very explicit that that's what their relationship is, that they're not married, um, that she's basically just the Duke's property. Whereas in the Villeneuve version, it they almost play it off like they are a married couple. Like she's always there for like the important ceremonial things, yeah. stuff like that. It really seems like she has equal power to the Duke as well. So that, and that's, that's something interesting. And I don't know. That's more like the book, actually. That's that's more like the book of you know the the society sees it as she's his property, but he he sees it. They both see it as they are married, and it's but you know there's there's obvious issues with that from even from a political standpoint. But that's why you know her title is Lady. She's the Lady Jessica. Like she's not the Duchess. She's not her husband. His his uh, his wife Matt. I mean so. Um, but I agree that is it, it, I forgot that that in the in the eighty four one they make it they make that a bit more explicit. But I think it's important to see that knowing Leo's fate like of what you know we don't see a lot of them together but when we see them together we kind of get it mm-hmm. yeah interesting okay uh i also maybe love to sort of talk a bit about uh the, the paul atreides character both of them timothy chalamet and, and kyle mclaughlin i feel like they they both were kind of bringing a very similar energy to their characters you know they have this angsty teen vibes to them but at the same time, understanding that there are things bigger and greater than them that they may be destined to do. I, I didn't mind uh, both of their performances. Uh, if anything, I, I think Kyle McLaughlin brought a bit more energy to the character that uh, Timothy Chalamet did not have. But what did you think of the the two of them? I agree. And it's funny that we've kind of gone almost this whole thing not talking about Paul, the main character of the movies. Um, I, yeah. I completely <laughs> agree with you. I think um, they bring very different things. I think Kyle McLaughlin... I agree. Brings energy. He brings the sort of like, okay, well, this is the role I'm playing. I'm just going to make it happen, and that's going to work. And I think he was a good 
casting choice um, for this role. And I know he awakened some things in me when I was a child when I saw the movie for, for the first time. But all that said, <laughs> I think Chalamet is very, very good given how young he still looks to be the angsty teenager. Because it's very important, like in the book, especially in the first part of the book, he is miserable. Oh, do we have to? Why are we doing this? I've learned everything. Just let me fight. Like, whatever. Come on, dad, whatever. Like that's, that pretty much is his character. He's kind of a, he's kind of a loser through much of, and then, you know, we see his time among the Fremen and all this stuff and all these roles he needs to start filling these things he's learned, he learns and develops and, and he, he grows. And I think that's a key thing. We're going to see a very different Paul in much of part two where we're not really given the chance in the 84 film. Yeah, we see a bit of Kamal Coughlin being like, oh, why do I have to? And then, okay, I guess I'm the hero now. Like, there's a bit a bit more of that. And it just, whereas there's a lot more confliction. And you can see a lot of the confliction in, in Timothy Chalamet's face later in the, in this movie. You know, as things goes on, he sort of realizes what's happening, what he has to do. Um, the the way he tries to take control in the desert and sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And then even, even in, in sort of the climax of this movie, him stepping up to defend his mother, you can see in his face, he's like, do I do this? What do I do? And then he, he doesn't realize what, you know, the outcome is going to have to be of, of this, this form of defense. Um, and, and I think that Chalamet captures that nuance a little bit better, especially as like a, you know, a few months ago, he was just an angsty, angsty teen. Um, and he's still that, but now he has to be more. And I think Kyle McLaughlin doesn't get enough time to develop in that way. Interesting. And and looking at both of them, they both were 25 uh, approximately when they're filming. They were probably 24 or 25. Uh, but yeah, they were 25 when the movies should have came out if we're, if we're counting the fact that Dune was supposed to come out last year, not this year. Yeah, and I think I mean you have to choose um, you have to choose someone who is on the younger end. The the actor they chose, who I thought actually did a pretty good job for the miniseries, was older, and there was a lot of comment like he did not play a teenager well. Like it was very is is very um, is very uh, dear Evan Hansen movie a little bit. Um, but but you know he's only a teen for a part of the story, and then he's an adult, and and even especially Dune Messiah like takes place much later. So you know if Villeneuve wants to make that, we're gonna have to find a way for Chalamet to look. 10, 15 years older than he is than he does now. And I'm sure there's a way to do that. But yeah, I think um, it's funny because, you know, as you said at the beginning, a lot of the story takes place in Paul's head. It's just him dealing with things and what spice awakens in him and, and who he act learning who he, he actually is or who other people think he's going to be. How do you show that in, in, in your face? How do you show that without telling it? And I think at least to the credit of Chalamet, he doesn't get voiceovers to do that. He just has to find a way to do it by being this kind of like deer in headlights half the time. Mm-hmm. I think also one thing that was interesting is both, both films have pretty stacked casts. Um, you know, we're looking at the, the David Lynch version, obviously Colin McLaughlin, that was his first movie, but has since gone on to, you know, be a bit of a, a cult uh, star, especially with his, his role in Twin Peaks. And there's a lot of David Lynch regulars in this movie as well. But like, it also has, uh, Jose Fair, who plays the Emperor, Brad Dorif, who plays Piter, and Sting in his, in a small role, Patrick Stewart as Gurney. And like, there's, there's quite a few pretty prominent actors in this movie. And of course, you look through the cast list of the new Dune movie, and it's, equally as stacked you know you got oscar isaac and rebecca ferguson zendaya jason momoa stellan skarsgård josh brolin javier bardem dave bautista on and on and on so it's it's interesting that this is this work obviously resonates with performers in such a way that they're willing to be a part of a greater ensemble even if they themselves have a small part and i think they understand this idea the concept of just because you don't have a large part doesn't mean your character is not uh incredibly important to the story yeah i mean 
people want to be in Dune. Like that's just, I think it's one of those things that, you know, I'm sure a lot of these actors, most of these actors saw, you know, Villeneuve getting the, getting the, the directing role in 2017. And I wouldn't be surprised if Timothy Chalamet's like agent or manager or even him himself was like, you need to be in this movie. Like there's, there's no argument you need to, mm-hmm. like a lot of people wanted to be, what's really interesting is, you know, like Oscar Isaac, he knows he's only in it for, for one movie. Um, but Jason Momoa in particular, Duncan is a character. It's really hard to explain, but Duncan kind of shows up in almost every book in the series, um, regardless of, of his fate. And I don't believe that's a spoiler by any means, because it has nothing to do with the second part of this, this uh, movie. But, you know, if this becomes a massive franchise, Jason Momoa is doing this for the next 40 years because he's, there's so many stories. But I think that, yeah, it's one of those things that... Um, Villeneuve has made a name for himself and Lynch had made, had started to make a name for himself quite a bit as well in his time. I think it's just, you know, people see this prestigious project and they want to be a part of it. But I think another component of this is a lot of people, people who know Dune know that if you're not one of a few characters, you also don't have to, you're not like in the middle of the desert for six months. You're maybe there for a month filming what you need <laughs> to do as well. Um, so I think that there's, mm-hmm. there's a component of that too. I have to say, I love this cast, but I also do love the cast of the eighties one. I, I just love that Patrick Stewart was Gurney and how wildly different the Gurney was in this movie. Apparently there was um, Gurney supposed to be a musician. And that's like a key part of his character. And he's highly, highly religious. So he quotes Bible verses and stuff all the time. Um, there's bits of that, but the, there apparently were two songs written for Josh Brolin and they just never even got filmed. And I, I have to wonder if he's just a horrible singer and that was why, or they just couldn't fit it in. Um, Villeneuve has been very clear that there is no director's cut because what we see is a director's cut. So I don't think we'll ever get to see that aside from maybe, you know, an audio piece on the Blu-ray or something like that. But um, the other piece of, uh, I think the other piece, I don't remember. Um, no, I don't think it was, it was Gurney. I'm pretty sure it was, um, it was Hawat who had the giant eyebrows in the 84 version. That is its own star as well. Um, if, if that's. Stufer. Oh yeah. Yeah. Stufer Hawat had the giant eyebrows. And then instead in the new version, we get the lovely parasol. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, and, and even um, who's the other character that had the giant eyebrows. It was, it was Piter in the original one. Whereas uh, Piter in the new version is, uh, is alopecia, which looks like all the Harkonnens have alopecia. Yes. And I think they were also trying to, in the old one, trying to show, you know, these two are Mentats in this one, you know, um, Thufir and Piter both have like a black bit on their lip. It's a, it's, it, it's hard to sort of, you know, in the book, you can be like, this person's a Mentat. So now we know they're a Mentat. Um, and that's all we need to know. And funny enough, it's not, it's not really explained in the new movie, but Mentats are basically human computers. And we see a glimpse of that with Hawat um, kind of doing a calculation really quickly because thinking machines are outlawed. So even the only glimpse of any kind of machine we see in the whole movie that's like not directly human controlled is um, Paul's uh, Paul's video books, and those are just pre-recorded holograms. Like there's there's no there's no like hey computer do this. And the whole thing is that thousands of years before there was a big war between thinking machines and humans, and that sort of left the universe as it is now. Um, But I think it's it's neat that they don't really need to explain what a mentat is, but can still sort of show it. Yeah, because he he does this thing where they talk about how long he must have traveled or something like that when um, the delegation arrives to award uh, the Duke with Arrakis and uh, and Thufir Hawat. His eyes roll back Mm -hmm. 
behind his head and basically has these like milky white eyes and you see him basically doing the mental calculations in his head and his eyes roll back down and like he says how long they must have traveled or something like that yeah and it's a good that's a good show not tell per thing it's not super vital um, exactly in the book paul trains with howat um to to kind of learn mentat things whereas mentats go to like this really intensive schooling to learn to, and you need to have a certain kind of brain for it it's not super important at this stage they might bring it up later it's not super vital but see like like howat and and fighter are both important characters because mentats as they are it, it it's part of the universe building i think villanova is just like these are people they're here this is the thing they do on to the next thing Okay, I, I think we did a, a great job sort of breaking down the, the similarities and differences and really just kind of going over it. This is a movie where I, I liked it when I watched it, the new one. I came out of the theater really appreciating a lot of the design. The look of it was fantastic. The performances were all great. But because I hadn't read the book, a lot of it kind of was a bit confusing to me. And when they kind of were getting into the weeds of this is the the political background and this is what's going on. It kind of lost me a little bit. I really liked the introduction. And then once they landed on Arrakis, it kind of lost me for quite a bit until the siege and everything afterwards. That was all super interesting. But it was that big chunk in the middle where it just kind of like glazed over me a little bit where I just wasn't really feeling the emotional connection to the film. But I think talking it out with you and especially watching the Lynch version and realizing how much better Villeneuve's version yes. helped me appreciate it too. I, I, I totally understand where you're coming from because if I hadn't read the book, I think, you know, there's a, there's a part where Paul goes and talks to the groundskeeper who's watering the date palms that definitely should not be on Arrakis. And I'm just like, if somebody didn't know the book or like didn't know anything about this story, this would be the lull for them, absolutely. And that's basically what you described. Like, yes. they're there. We don't really know much. We go, you know, it, there's an, the important moment where they go to the, um, they go to to rescue the the crew at the, um, the the spice collector. And Paul has that first prescience. He says, you know, I hear your footsteps, old man, which is referring to the, the worm. Um, and those are important pieces, but there's also not a ton of context. It's sort of just, it might just seem like a little action or it might just seem, you know, these are people we need to meet kinds, blah, blah, blah. Um, but you're right. In comparison, especially it's, it's like, okay, these, these are very different. Uh, these are very different movies and they're handled in very, very interesting ways. And I also like, they didn't, the book doesn't include Duncan Idaho's kind of last stand. Um, and I love that they, they kind of managed to get that extra fight choreography in there. I think they, they did a good job with that as well. Yeah, that that was a real highlight for me. And I like how they, they did a little bit of foreshadowing at the beginning of the movie when Paul says, I, I see your death and Duncan is very dismissive of it. And then we don't really we're not sure how it all ends up coming together. And then when you start seeing that sequence play out, you understand where it was and, and how Paul's premonition came to be. Yeah, I'm hoping that, you know, we saw some glimpses of, of different future elements of paul i hope that this movie will do kind of do good justice of you know showing us those scenes as they really happen or see how paul tries to avoid certain things from happening because that's part of his you know oncoming prescience of trying to to keep things from happening the way he sees them and i think uh you know I, i'm glad all this said this is there's a lot of heady weird stuff that happens this was very much a precursor to a lot of other science fiction for as you can probably imagine um and i think that there there's High hopes for the second part. I have, even if it's a terrible movie, I know I'm going to enjoy it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I feel like for the most part, audiences were so on board with this version that hopefully it will allow Villeneuve and his fellow writers the freedom to do what they need to do to make the movie 
right, that they're not going to just acquiesce to what they think the studio will want or what they think the public will want, that they'll allow them to go in the weird direction that Frank Herbert clearly uh, was writing about in his original novel. That was such an inspiration behind David Lynch and, and the rest of his his team working on that film. And it'll be very interesting to sort of see where they go with it. And especially like we had talked about at the beginning, they set up all the main characters. We know all the players. We understand what's happening. And like, even if you haven't watched the 84 version, when, when this Dune ends and they're, they meet up with the Fremens and they're going into the desert, you basically know, great, they're going to have to basically rally troops together to figure out how to defeat the incoming Harkonnens because they're definitely going to come back to make sure that they can claim Arrakis. Like just, just by, understanding how plot works you understand yes. that's what's going to happen next. they said desert power enough times for you to know what desert power means and what they're going to be after yes. i think the other thing in terms of the next movie is people are going to read the book more people that have never read the book before you know what people some people some critics were lamenting that this wasn't a blockbuster because at the time of recording it hasn't hit 100 million domestic i think it will i think it's going to have a little bit of legs um, but it also did very well overseas because dune's not just a north american book like people have read it but i think the second movie is going to have that unusual sequel benefit of of this appetite. People watch watch this movie. They want to know what happens next. They read the book, and then they really want to see this version of Paul that they know. They want to see how this concludes. I'm not going to say it's going to make a billion dollars because I doubt that's going to happen, but I think it's going to drum up more interest in, in a more unique way than this first one did. Because they're like you know among fans before the pandemic, there was a real concern that this was going to be a major flop, like a like a ten million dollar opening weekend and then disappear off the face of the earth. So. Obviously, HBO Max helped in the States a little bit, and I think the the overseas enthusiasm is very, very high as well. Yes, absolutely. I can, I can easily see how part two will probably make more money, and not just because of the fact that we're still in, in COVID times and some people are, are hesitant to go to theaters, which I think will definitely be an added bonus. But this definitely seems like the type of movie that is going to have a bit of legs where maybe people are going to wait until it's available on streaming. I know in the US you can watch on HBO Max, but nowhere else yet. Uh, can you stream it so easily? And I think as people are sort of discovering and being like, well, I didn't read the book, so I don't want to watch this in theaters. I don't want to spend my money in this. But hey, you know what? Now it's on Netflix. Now it's on, yeah. you know, Amazon Prime, wherever wherever it ends up going to. Uh, it will encourage more people to watch it. And then by the time part two comes out in a few years, enough people have seen it go, great, now I want to see how it ends. And don't forget the, the inevitable uh, Oscar nominations. I, I can't say from watching this movie that there'll be any acting noms, to be perfectly honest. I thought the acting was spectacular, but I don't, I don't know what the Academy will be looking for in this movie, but there will be technical nominations for sure. Maybe quite a few technical wins. Um, it's very hard to film in the desert, for instance, um, and make, make mm-hmm. sand convincing it, when they, I think there was some CGI help with the sand for sure. So um, I think that will renew interest. I remember that that's happened with movies that are sort of kind of, you know, not forgotten, but then they kind of come up, um, you know, this, this could be just purely as a, as a, like a, an appreciation of what Dune is to science fiction. This could be a best picture nomination. I don't think it will be, but who knows? Yeah. It's sort of interesting where like, it looks to be the absolute front runner for categories like sound design, visual effects, uh, costume design, production design, but not music. Uh, We're not even talking about that, but if they nominate for music, I don't, I'm not so sure I feel good about them winning music. Anyway, that's not what we're here Mm -hmm. to talk about, but you're right. It's going to be a technical, It'll, it'll sweep nominations for technical awards for sure. 
And yeah, and, and could even potentially win them as well. I, I would not be shocked. And then you look at, yeah, maybe it is a bit of a long shot as getting into best picture or even as best director, depending on, on how things are going for, for other movies. Maybe less so director, but it probably will squeak in there as like the eighth or ninth movie for best picture, uh, all things considered, if they want to sort of keep a quote unquote blockbuster in the running. I can see it happening, and I'm sure you and I will talk about the nominations when they come out. (laughs) Absolutely. Well, I think that wraps up our conversation. Sammy, thank you for coming on. Uh, It was a real pleasure for you to kind of help me fill in some of the gaps that I didn't quite know what I was missing. And and getting to talk about these two versions of the same movie was a lot of fun. Thank you for having me, and I'm always happy to talk about Dune and the Academy Award winning uh, sorry, film Suicide Squad. I managed to get it in there. (laughs) <laughs> oh, damn it, Sammy. Uh, I thought I thought we made it all the way through. So close. Uh, well, so, so very close. But you can follow this show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoomPod. And if you saw both versions of Dune, let us know what you think of the similarities and differences of them. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you can, if you like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there too. Thanks for checking us out.